All right, so today, the Lord is my shepherd. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the 23rd Psalm, and a couple observations that, that come to mind. If God is such a good shepherd, how did I end up in the valley of the shadow of death? And if God's supposed to be paying such close and careful attention, and if he's a good shepherd, how, how do I wander off there? And then second, what exactly is the valley of the shadow of death? So let's start with the, the latter one first, the meaning of the valley of the shadow of death. It's a term that first appears and only appears uh, in the book of Job and all the rest of the Bible. And Job is one of the strangest books uh, in the scriptures. And it comes long before the Psalms, too. So uh, I'm going to read to you from Job chapter 1, um, verses 6 through 12. And uh, just let you know on, on, on where this term comes from. Uh, Job opens with God essentially baiting Satan to tempt one of God's own followers, Job. Um, which is a pretty strange scenario. We're not used to seeing, you know, God in this way. Um, so here, here it goes. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Which is kind of a strange statement. Um, you know, what does it mean that Satan is, is roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it? And we get a little bit of a clue about what that means if you look at First Peter uh, chapter 5, verse 8, where Peter says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, Satan, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So that's sort of the essence of what uh, Job is telling us here, this roaming throughout the earth, um, this prowling around looking for someone to devour. So then verse 8, back into um, Job. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. I think if I'm reading this, um, you know, God, please, I hope you have taken no notice of me. I am nothing to brag about. Uh, I mean, how many people in here want want to be in the position of, uh, of Job? Um, essentially, God is holding out Job for Satan uh, to tempt Satan says, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And he wreaked havoc on Job. All right, he kills his cattle, his livestock, his livelihood. He kills his servants. He kills his very own children. Job ends up diseased. He's got boils all over his body. His friends won't come anywhere near him. He loses virtually everything. Everything except, and this is the kicker, I think is, I think this is the kicker. He loses everything except his nagging wife, who scolds Job, calls him a fool for still worshiping God, and tells him that he should just curse God and die. Like, that to me is an extra curse. God, you've taken everything from me except my nagging wife. But, but Job refuses to curse God. Instead, he pleads for God just to kill him. 
Job chapter 10, this is what he says. Are not my days almost over? Please, God, turn away from me so I can have a moment's joy before I go to the place of no return, to the land of gloom, the deep valley, and the shadow of death. The valley of the shadow of death. And this is where our term comes from in, in the 23rd Psalm. It's like being at death's door. It's despair. It's a threshold of hell. Now, I mean, this might sound trivial, but I think it works for helping understand, you know, exactly what we're, we're talking about. Uh, one of my favorite holiday movies, even though it's corny and stupid, um, is Christmas Vacation, you know, with, with Chevy Chase. Uh, it's kind of a family classic um, and a tradition in our family. But you know, if you haven't seen the movie, Clark Griswold is, is hosting his entire family for Christmas, and it's an absolute disaster, right? I mean, a cat's been electrocuted, um, a recliner has uh, been fried, a, uh, the Christmas tree's caught fire, they've got a squirrel on the loose in the house, they've got a dog named Snots, um, who has a sinus problem, who's tearing up the entire house, uh, and, and Clark just wigs out. I mean, he just loses it, goes off on his entire family, and then ends up, you know, ends up just going into the kitchen just to have a moment to sort of just chill. And so his wife, Helen, comes into the kitchen, and she says, let's just let all the family go home before things get worse. And Clark says, worse? How could things possibly get any worse? Look around you, Helen. We're at the threshold of hell. Job's at the threshold of hell. It can't get worse. And he's just pleading with God for death. And yet not once does Job or whoever's written this book, the author, not once do they ever assign blame to anyone else but God in the whole story. They don't back off from saying that God's responsible for Job being in the situation that he is God's sovereign. He is responsible for Job's blessings as well as his cursings. And this is what Job himself says after all this stuff has happened. He falls to the floor and he worships God saying, naked I came into this world, naked will I leave it. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. And then he says, may the name of the Lord be praised. And never once in any of this, we're told, does Job speak false. His words are accurate. And here's like one of the final words from the author of the book. While Job is suffering, they, his friends, comforted and consoled Job over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him. And this is a really strange notion because we typically don't preach this in America because it doesn't sell very well, right? Right? A God who would bring this kind of trouble on me. Here's the truth of, uh, of what's happened. Job didn't wander into the valley uh, of the shadow of death. God brought him there. God is sovereign. He is in control over what happens in our lives. It's not a surprise to him. Listen to what the Scriptures say. Uh, say from various places. Here's the psalmist in 139. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days 
uh, ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to pass. Isaiah says, have you not heard? Long ago I ordained it. In days of old I planned it. Now I brought it to pass. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, not even one sparrow will fall to the ground without your father's willing it. Without your father's will. That's a sparrow, seemingly insignificant. God brought Job into the valley of death. And the question has to be, why? What kind of God deliberately brings me to the brink of death, to the threshold of hell? And the answer is, it's the kind of God who will stop at nothing, at nothing to win our love for him. God knows that his love is the kind of love that removes and covers and heals every kind of misery, every kind of sin we've committed, every kind of sin that's been committed against us. God is that confident in his love to heal. That no matter what it takes to get us to the point of receiving his love, all of that will disappear. God risks bringing us to the brink of death if that's what it takes for us to find his love because he has every confidence that once we found it, everything, everything that we previously considered blessing, we'd count as loss. And everything that we previously considered loss, we'd count as blessing. See, we have, not just Americans, not just North Carolinians, I mean, just people. We are built with this insatiable appetite, this instinct for love. And it's not money that makes the world go around, as, as they say. It's love, or at least the quest for love, that makes the world go round. And the pain in life comes from, from not discovering it, from looking at every other place for love, but the one place where that love actually is. The philosopher Pascal said this, and probably a lot of you guys know this, especially if you've been to school, studied worldviews. There is an infinite abyss, an infinite abyss, a hole in each of us that can only be filled by an infinite object, God himself. God leads us into the valley of the shadow of death because it's only sometimes in the shadow of death that we see where true love lies. Right? God brings us sometimes to the darkest of places so that he can shine brightest to make himself the object of our deepest joy and desires. And that might sound selfish, that God would do that kind of a thing, but, you know, I mean, as Anthony reminded us a, a few weeks ago, right, if God is the highest good in the entire universe and God delights, you know, in himself more than anything else in the world, then only reasons that we should too, that it would be really good for us to enjoy God the way God enjoys God. And what that would mean is the most generous, the most gracious thing that God could do for, for you or for me is to capture our love, to make himself the delight of our hearts, to make himself our deepest joy, no matter what the cost is in doing it. 
Jesus tells uh, a parable, right, of the hidden treasure. You ever read the parable of the hidden treasure or think about its words? The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. That's kind of odd, right? When a man found a treasure hidden in a field, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold everything else that he had and he bought that field. Right? This makes no sense. If a man finds treasure in a field, pick it up, take it, go home. It's yours. Instead, he hides the treasure, sells off everything he has to buy that treasure. And this is obviously a metaphor for the love of God. It is worth everything we have. We're selling off everything we have only to possess that. The psalmist David says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Whenever I've heard that before, I thought like that was a quid pro quo. Like this is a deal. All right, I will enjoy God and God will give me good stuff. But that's not what the psalmist means at all. David means um, something like, I guess really this. Your heart's true desire is found only in delighting in God above all things. In other words, delighting yourself in the Lord is the deepest desire of your heart. It is the deepest longing of your heart. And when you delight yourself in God, you will realize that it is so. Everything else will fall away. The valley of the shadow of death is essentially what, what biblically you'd call testing. And it's not the kind of test that we think of, you know, where, where we think about proving ourselves or rising to the occasion or showing what's made of us or someone testing us to see what it is that we know. God doesn't test us so that we can show him what we're made of or even show ourselves what we're made of. He brings us to the threshold of hell to show us what we're made for to expose the false loves of our, our life and to rid us of them. John Piper says that the world is a really hard place in which to enjoy Jesus above all. Right? The world is a very hard place in which to enjoy Jesus above all. Our own suicidal tendency is to enjoy other things more. And those things must be crushed. They must be crushed. See, the things in themselves, the, and some of them wonderful things, they're not death. They're not suicide in themselves. But it's our penchant, our instinct to make more of those good things, to, to have them try to deliver for us what they can't deliver, that's the suicide. That's where death comes. They can't deliver. And we invest our love and our joy and our affection in all of those things. It's the reason why Solomon said that it's better to be at a funeral than a wedding. What a strange thing to say too, huh? Better to be at a funeral than a wedding. Because at a funeral, at a funeral we realize just how true this is. We're able to see just how false the loves of our lives have really been, how ultimately vain and futile they are. What is the repetitive phrase that goes throughout Solomon's book of Ecclesiastes over and over again? Vanity of what? Vanities. Emptiness of emptiness. 
an, an infinite abyss which you keep trying to fill with uninfinite things. And in the end, he says, the only thing that makes a man or makes a person is God and his word and following it. The world keeps putting its best products before us, and it keeps trying to say, this is life, right? Everything from jeans to coffee to, to iPods, this is life. If you have this, then you will have the Quan. You will have it all. You'll have the whole package. You're only always lacking what? Just one thing more to be complete, to know love. And each time we purchase one more thing, we still find that the hole is infinitely deep. And we haven't filled it up in ounce. What we were made for is to enjoy, to delight, to revel in God the Father. Above all things, above anything else, we were just made simply to enjoy Him. Can you imagine just for a moment what that would be like? Just you and God. First and foremost, above all things, you enjoying Him. You enjoying Him. Me enjoying Him. John Piper has this uh, twist on the, on the Westminster's, you know, the Westminster Confession, which probably half of us don't even know or care about. Um, sometimes I don't care about it. So you're not alone. I don't study this thing, but the first question is, is really worthy of reading. It says, what is the chief end of mankind? And the answer that the confession gives is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And John Piper has this really well-known twist on that phrase, and he says that's not what they meant. They didn't mean two different things. They meant one thing. That the chief end, what mankind was made for, was to enjoy uh, to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. By enjoying Him forever. God is most glorified when we enjoy Him. We are most glorified when we're enjoying Him. It's the stuff that we're made for. It's the stuff that gives us life. It's not just what we were put on, on earth to do. It's how we're made. And we know this, don't we? If you if you have, and I know you guys know people who lead perfectly great, wonderful, what I just call pagan lives, people who aren't following Christ, people who do not have the joy of Christ in their hearts, they can lead good lives. And yet you know, after just a little bit of time with them, that there's something really important missing, that all of this stuff is vanity that they're filling it with. And the only thing that makes for someone to come alive is loving Christ, loving Jesus, Nothing less and nothing else than delighting fully in God. John, um, we sometimes call him John the Seer or John the Prophet, all kinds of names. The guy who wrote Revelation um, is given this vision. Jesus' words that he, he writes to the church in Ephesus in chapter 2. Listen to these words. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. Glowing words. I know you cannot tolerate wicked men. You've tested and exposed false apostles. You've persevered. 
You've endured hardships for my name, and you've not grown weary. You have an incredible resume, Church of Ephesus, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You stopped loving me. And then he says this, take note of the height from which you have fallen. By all worldly and Christian standards, the church of Ephesus has got it going on, right? Pure in their doctrine and their understanding of the scriptures and of God. They have got a missional laundry list that can't be beat by anybody. And Jesus says, but you're dead. You're dead. Your best resume doesn't get you even close to life. We weren't created for knowledge. We weren't created for works. None of those things sustain us. None of those things are life. Because God isn't running a sweatshop, and God isn't running a school or a college or, or a university. That's not the thing that God is doing. He's running a household over which he's the father. And the one thing that he wants above all things, the only thing that matters in the household, is for us to thoroughly enjoy the father. That's probably a very difficult concept for most of us to grasp, especially those who didn't grow up with a father who loved them or a father who they loved very much. The notion that God, as father, simply wants us to just sit there, to just be open so that he can pour his love and affection over us and that we come to life in him. God steers us into the valley of death to loosen our grip on false loves of our life, our resumes, our elitist, self-righteous attitudes, our good works, our families, our ministries, all the things that we cling to that we think make life. God says, none of those are life. I am your life. Enjoy me. And that might seem a little drastic that God would drag us all the way to the brink of hell so that that would be what happens to us. But you know, it's only drastic, it's only cruel if God sits from afar in the cheap seats and watches us. That's my daughter, <laughs> whom I love to pieces. <laughs> God doesn't sit in the seats and watch us go into the valley of the shadow of death. He's not a spectator. He goes in before us, not even just with us, not even just alongside of us. He goes in before us, and not just to the brink of hell. Think about Jesus, who goes over into death and hell, and then comes back again for us, because that's what it is, right? For the Son of Man, for the Son of God to take the weight of our sin, to take our death, to take our hell upon his own shoulders and go to the cross and go to the grave and descend to the deepest of deeps and say, Death, where is your sting? 
you got nothing on me. You can't hold me. And we're told that Jesus took on our hell, our sin, and our death. That he did it, and these words you cannot miss, for the what set before him? Joy. For the joy set before him. Hell is no match for his life because he has life in the Father. And it's precisely, precisely only because he joys in the Father that Jesus has life. That's why Peter says it's impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And that's why the scriptures tell us fix your eyes on him. Jesus walked not only, you know, alongside the edge of death, but into it and back again so that we wouldn't have to, so that his love, so that his delight in God the Father and the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, that that would become our love, that that would become our delight. Because in the end, the only thing that conquers death, the only thing that conquers hell is our joying in the Father. That's where life comes from. Look how Jesus puts it, um, at least as recorded by John, 15th chapter. These things, he says, I've spoken to you. And if you read all the context, he's been, he's been talking about his forthcoming death and his joy in doing it. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy, the joy that I have in the Father, may be in you. And that your joy may be complete. A couple of weeks ago, um, well, probably a few weeks ago now, it snowed out. We um, talked about fairy tales. Remember that? We gave you guys a couple of rules for fairy tales. I'm going to give you another rule. The first two rules were this. You become like what you worship. You become like what you worship. The second one is you're only as good as the one in whom you trust. And the third one is you are only as alive as your greatest joy. You are only as alive as your greatest joy. Jesus delights in the Father, and he goes to the cross so that we would have our greatest joy in the Father. The question is, what do you find? If you do an inventory, and it's time to do inventory, what do you find your greatest joy in? What is your greatest happiness? My guess is that most of us, the first thing that comes to our mind isn't Jesus. It's something else. It's something else. Truth is that our lives are the way they are because Jesus is not our first joy. It's some idolatry. There's some love that just competes for us that we don't even necessarily consciously give ourselves over to. It, it, it just is. It's just there. So some real practical stuff then. First, let's be active 
in our delight. I know some of, some of us are, are hyper-pious, and we don't want to force delight. We don't want to fake it. We want it to sort of come to us. We want it to happen to us. It's a passive thing sometimes in the way that we think about delight, but that's not how it works. If you read the Scriptures and you look at every time this word delight is used, like 90% of the time or more, it's used as a verb. It's used as an active thing. Delight isn't a feeling. Delight is an action. It's practiced. So in order to do that, you have to do a couple of things. First, you've got to remind yourself of the one truth above all truths that should inspire joy in us, which is God delights in you. God delights over you and over me. Not because I'm so darn delightful or because you are either, but because God delights in himself. And he wants us to enjoy that kind of delight, that kind of joy that comes only from him. Psalm 16, as for the saints who are in the land, God says, they are the glorious ones in whom is my delight. And saint does not mean the way we think of saints today, right? Someone who's got a halo over their head, someone who's beautiful, someone who's perfect, pure, right? Saint, yeah. Saint, anyone who belongs to God in all their mess and imperfection, saints, no matter how screwed up we are, no matter how messed up our feelings are, no matter how little we love God right now, God delights over us if we're his. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me, the psalmist says. And then he goes on again, another one to say, the Lord be exalted who delights in the well-being of his servants. God already delights in us. And then we're reminded of that and remind ourselves of that. It gives us an opportunity then to do something very active on our part again, which is, Return that delight. Reciprocate. Psalm 36, we feast on the abundance of your house. You give us drink from your river of delights. Again, Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 43, then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my joy, in my delight, I will praise you with the harp, O God, my God. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in him. And then Isaiah, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. The light works like praise. When you start to take delight in something, that something becomes the object of your delight. Even if it isn't already naturally the object of your delight, when you start to delight in it, it becomes the object of your delight becomes the object of your, your joy. And all of a sudden, you can't help but keep on giving more and more joy and finding more and more joy. And it's a very vicious cycle of joy. And God says, I want to catch you up in that. 
I want to catch you up in me. Because once you taste of me, once you enjoy me, you'll find that you cannot stop. You'll find that there is abundant life, the life that Jesus promises, where God is at the center of your every joy, and that everything else is just counted as loss, counted as nothing in comparison to it. Is that true of you? Is that true of me? And the answer is really no. But I pray that it is so. And I want to work at it. I want to work at receiving the grace of God. And the work is easy in the one sense because all God asks is sit at my feet. Open yourself to receive my love, you'll find nothing better. The Lord is my shepherd, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. May he win our love, yours and mine. And may we count everything else that's come before as lost.